Happy Monday! Short week. Short week if you have Good Friday off. And then next week is a short week if you have Easter Monday off. Or you might just have a couple of full weeks. We'll see what happens. Late Easter this year. Late spring arrival this year. If you saw the snow flurries falling down on what, if you were in the right place, was the fairways of London golf courses. We're going to talk some golf in just a little bit. Tiger Woods, anyone? Anyone? That was amazing. That was truly amazing. Steve Bennett, head golf pro at London City Courses, was at Augusta. And we will talk with him about the Tiger Woods win. We'll also get an update on Mike Weir because Steve goes down annually and spends some time with Mike Weir. So that's coming up in about 10 minutes from right now. You don't want to miss it. He can take us through what makes Augusta the challenge it is and how a golfer like Tiger Woods actually has an advantage. Not because he's Tiger Woods. He actually has an advantage playing at a course like that. We are going to talk about Alzheimer's, and that's coming up in about a half hour from now. We are also going to look at, yes, the Ontario government challenging the carbon tax legislation put forth by the federal government. I don't know where they're headed with this. This this is interesting because it it basically looks at the jurisdiction that federal and provincial legislation have and kind of which one do you point to? Because we're not dealing with something like, oh, healthcare, oh, that's provincial. Oh, prisons, yeah, that's federal. We're not doing it that way. This is a little bit different. So we're going to talk about that in hour number two of the show. We have to look at some of the strange things going on in the sports world. We'll keep tabs on what happens with Londoner Nazem Kadri of the Toronto Maple Leafs. He's having a hearing that has just begun with the National Hockey League. Will he be suspended for the second year in a row in the playoffs? As soon as we know, we will let you know about that. But we need your help with something. In fact, Chatham-Kent Police Service needs your help with something. And you may be able to, just by looking identify someone and help to get something back into the hands of a person who's probably really missing it right now. We have word from Chatham Cunt Police Service that a wedding album has been found. So let's get a little bit more information on this. Joining us right now from Chatham Kent Police Service is Constable Renee Cowell. Constable Cowell, how is today going? Busy date here today on a Monday, but we're actually looking for the public's assistance today. Well, let's talk about why that is, because you found something that you may not come across. Um, I don't know if you'd come across it any other day. You found what? Yeah, so a few weeks ago, officers from our street crimes unit recovered an old wedding album during a search warrant. Now, we would really like to return this album to its rightful owners. We've tried numerous different investigative avenues to try and determine where the photos were taken or when they were taken or, or who's in the photos, but we've really come up shorthanded. So we're looking to the uh, the public today for their assistance. Okay. Now, in terms of, of what this photo album looks like, we're going to have pictures posted on our Twitter feed at 980CFPL and, and on our Facebook page, but can you describe maybe a little bit for anybody who's not able to get to Twitter or Facebook immediately as to what you have? Yeah, we've got an old wedding album. Uh, the cover of the album's uh, more like a silver, um, flowery type, and it just says Our Wedding. Um, and we've released some of the photos contained within the album today, specifically of the bride and groom and one of the uh, bridal party, uh, the bride with her, her bridesmaids. And we're hoping that someone out there today will recognize that bride and groom and call us. Are these color photos? Do they look like they come from any particular decade? 
Yeah, they are all black and white photos. They're beautiful photos, and we really would like to return this album to its rightful owners. And other than that, no mention of, of any year or anything like that? There is nothing in this, this album that we could decipher any any information from. So again, that's why we're, we're going to the, uh, the public today to, to help us find their owners. Well, Constable, we wish you the best of luck. We'll do our best here in this part of the world to get the, the pictures out and, and hopefully somebody recognizes somebody. Thank you so much for your help. And, and again, we're, we're just hoping to find this bride and groom and give them back their album. Sounds great. Have a great day. Thank you. You too. Constable Renee Cowell from Chatham-Kent Police Service on that wedding album. I'll tweet out a picture right now, and we've got a story that is going to be put out later today on i80cfpl.ca that you'll be able to see. So that way you can have a look at the pictures themselves, and if you identify anybody, like these are not, these are not new pictures. These are not pictures that are from the 70s, probably not from the 60s, Probably not even from the 50s. So we're going back in time a little bit, but we're trying to find the rightful owner of this wedding album as we begin the show. So I will tweet out that picture, have a look at it at Stubbs980, and there are four pictures actually. There's the cover of the album, and then there are three of the pictures contained in the album. Let's take a quick break on London Live. Next up, we're going to talk with Steve Bennett, head golf pro at the London City Golf Courses. He was at Augusta and was able to see things get going and get rolling for Tiger Woods as Tiger Woods won the Masters on the weekend. If you're using an iPhone right now to look at Twitter and maybe check up on those pictures, the iPhone had not been invented the last time Tiger Woods won a Masters. People are putting things like that out right now. This was not a thing that it's not like you have to go all the way back to when the internet was invented. That always seems to be a big turning point. Anything pre-1995 or 1994, about the time when the internet used to, or caught on, it's not like that. It's not It's not as big as that. But there are a lot of things. You name a social media service, didn't exist. Instagram, Twitter, but yeah, the iPhone, not a thing. Last time Tiger won the Masters. This is Global News Radio, 980 CFPL. How long has it been since Tiger Woods won the Masters? Not that long. It was in the 2000s. But here are things that weren't around. Uber, iPhone, iPad, a Kindle, Spotify, Instagram, Snapchat, Lyft, a Fitbit. Lionel Messi had never scored a senior goal for Barcelona. George W. Bush had just started his second term. Barack Obama was a senator. Sahara was the number one movie. I don't even remember what that is. Somebody said Matthew McConaughey's in it. Destiny's Child had just begun their final tour. Does that mean Beyonce and Jay-Z weren't really a thing? I think it does. And Rory McIlroy was 15 years old. Steve Bennett happened to be at Augusta in Georgia as the week began. He heads down there each and every year. He is the head golf pro at the London City Golf Courses. And we are lucky enough to talk with Steve right now. Steve, was there any inclination at the beginning of the week that this weekend could or would go how it did for Tiger Woods? Well, I think uh, people were talking about Tiger, and I think secretly he, uh, as he alluded to, that uh, you know he was starting to ground into form where he thought he had a chance uh, 
to uh, to be up near the the top of the leaderboard. But uh, you know, are we surprised? I think most people are saying, yeah, they are surprised. But then most are saying, no, they're not. Um, you know, this this win for Tiger uh, for golf as a whole is just absolutely uh, off the charts. That uh, you know, to come back from like almost two years ago where he didn't know whether he could even play again. You know, with his back surgery and that, and uh, that, uh, you know, he wins his fifth green jacket is just, uh, you know, uh, probably one of the greatest comebacks in, uh, comebacks in sports history. Absolutely. So let's go back to the, the start of the tournament. You were there. The course seemed to be in absolutely phenomenal shape because there'd been a little more moisture than usual. How did it look up close? Well, it's 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 just um, uh, it's it's spectacular when you you know that you never find a uh, a piece of grass out of out of place. The place is just uh, majestic. But uh, uh, with the wetness that they had, uh, you know, it started to show some wear and tear along the sides where the spectators uh, were. But uh, overall, and it plays long. They've lengthened it out now to like seventy four, seventy five. Uh, the whole number five that they made the changes on uh, is now like 500 yards, uh, and that. So the course is playing very long, and the way they cut the grass with the fairways against you, that you're sort of playing into the green, that you don't get the ball release, and that uh, the course just plays tough. And with the elevations that you really don't see on TV, um, it, it, it's just a it, it's a bear. So what does it take to win then? You would think it would take long tee shots, and that's not necessarily something Tiger Woods is known for, is he? Well, he does He does hit the ball out there, uh, you know, not as far as he used to, but he's still up around the 300-yard mark. But I guess what where Tiger showed uh, his experience over the other ones that were in position to win the uh, first major was, um, you know, the course management. You know, when you take a look yesterday on hole number 12, when um, he he plays it to the middle of the green and the others play it sort of, you know, almost like as if they're going at the pin. But what you don't realize in hole number 11, you stand there 11, the flag's blown one way, and the flag on hole number 12, which is only 160 yards away, is blown in a different direction. And the trees that um, are, are tall around that green in behind – uh, it doesn't, you don't feel the wind, but there was wind against them and they just basically misclubbed. Hmm. And he didn't. He didn't. He knew, he knew where to play. He knew uh, the way the winds were blowing. He played to the center of the green. Um, the thing is, you can, uh, you can win it with a, uh, a three, but if you hit it in the water, you're losing the tournament. And, you know, four of the last two groups hit it in the water. We had, four double bogeys on hole number 12, which was just, you know, you don't make that mistake on hole number 12. You know, they hit the ball 300-plus yards, and it gets down to, you know, what you think is a simple hole, uh, 160 yards, and they make the big mistake. We're talking with Steve Bennett, who was at Augusta to start this weekend to see what was going on and and the roar of Tiger Woods and everything that has come with it. Steve is the head pro of all of the City of London golf courses. So to, to be at Augusta, so few people get an opportunity to go there. Do they actually play a lot of rounds on Augusta after or even before this one, or, or is it true that they shut the place down? 
Well, they, it's it's a uh, it's a best kept secret. Nobody really knows um, how many people are, are members and and that. Uh, but again, uh, as you saw, history being made this week, uh, the Saturday before uh, the Masters was when they had the uh, the uh, the ladies amateur championship, the inaugural event. Uh, they four years ago they started the drive chip and putt. So Augusta really is a, a trendsetter uh, with golf and uh, uh, with what they're doing there. It's absolutely amazing uh, with, with the uh, the ladies amateur that they, they started. But uh, there's not many people uh, play the golf course. They play it because basically most of the members that are members of Augusta National are from out of state, out of country. <laughs> you have to be invi- you have to be invited to be a member. At Augusta, you don't ask to be a member. Well, it is a hallowed place, and Tiger Woods finds a way to win there yet again. And like you say, his management is just like that. And when he starts a day and he's one stroke back, even though people were looking at Francesco Molinari saying, hey, this guy is this guy's a machine. This guy will not be affected by the fact that Tiger is on your shoulder. you got to be a little affected by the fact that Tiger's on your shoulder, don't you? Well, you do, you know, and you sort of, uh, it's almost like a, a chess game, you know, who's going to, who's going to make the, the mistake. And he knew, um, you know, not knowing that they were going to make a mistake, but with his, you know, you got to, it's number one, patience. You got to stick with your game plan. You can't get outside that element and try to push it and force it to make a score. You got to let it happen. And, and that's sort of the thing about Augusta. Um, that that he knows, um, and you know they with a lot more playing of Augusta. Uh, you know, ten years from now, they probably would never make that mistake. And I'm sure you're going to see uh, Francesco with a green jacket, and you're going to see Dustin Johnson with a green jacket over the next ten years. But you have to pay, you know, your the price and and play it a few times in order to get to feel the comfort zone out there at Augusta. And, uh, you know, I think eventually they will get the green jacket. But Tiger just, you know, I think just not that he outplayed them. He just outsmarted them. Well said. Steve Bennett joining us. He is the head golf pro at the City of London Golf Courses and makes that pilgrimage to Augusta each and every year. You got a chance to hang out with Mike Weir. Get us caught up on Mike Weir. How's he doing? Well, I've been very fortunate, uh, Mike, to, to that was my 20th Masters that I've been to. Uh, knowing Mike when he grew up as a, as a youngster. Um, he did play. He missed the cut by one. Uh, his, I like what I'm seeing in his game. Um, he didn't sink a lot of putts. But then again, a lot of people don't sink a lot of putts at Augusta National uh, with, with the greens and that. The speeds were off a little bit this week compared to what they normally would be. But uh, I like what I'm seeing. He's going this week to play in Alabama. Uh, on the web.com uh, tour and that, but uh, you know he's he's slowly making a comeback. He turns 48 or 49, I'm sure, say in May. But uh, his game is starting to round into in, into shape. You know, unfortunately, his distance is he hasn't increased. When Mike won the Masters in 2003, he averaged 285. He's now averaging around 275 or 280. So it's something that he's not gaining. Uh, He's not hitting the 300 yards. He never will hit at 300 yards on a, on an average uh, basis. But uh, you know, a person of that can still manage them, their, themselves around the golf course at Augusta. 
because it's it's knowing where to hit it, uh, not pin-seeking, playing at the positions on the greens in order to get the putt uh, to go up to the hole instead of putting down and across to the holes. So, you know, we look forward to um, MikePlayingTheWeb.com this year, and then when he obviously turns 50, he'll be going to the Champions Tour, and uh, he's he's excited about that. Uh, you never thought that you'd be excited at 50 to, to be going, you're going to be a rookie again on the on the. <laughs> On the Champions Tour, but uh, it's something uh, that he's looking forward to, and you know, it's just great to spend time with Mike. Uh, that you know, once a once a year, I get to spend it uh, at uh, the Hollow Grounds of Augusta National at the Masters. Wow. Well, Steve, before we let you go, and we really thank you for all the time today. Give us an update. You had some snowflakes landing on the fairways at the City of London courses. How are things going in preparation for what hopefully is a long golf season in this area? Well, that's what we're hoping. It's sort of a shock coming back to to this, but uh, you know, I, I see the forecast. It's to get a little bit warmer, but I see there's lots of rains uh, in the, in the forecast. But the golf courses are good. It's just a matter of of getting some. Uh, uh, we just need some sunshine to that, and and hopefully we're going to have a great year. Uh, I know last year April was was not great, but uh, we're, we're optimistic, and uh, let's let's hope that we have a great season. Steve, thanks so much for reliving the weekend with us, and we really appreciate the time. All the best on the courses this summer. Great. Thanks, Mike. It's always a pleasure. Steve Bennett, head golf pro, London City Golf Courses, on Mike Weir, being at Augusta, and certainly Tiger Woods. And the fight over Tiger Woods and his place in all of this – Social media tarnishes so many things. You've got people who immediately look back to everything that Tiger Woods went through. You know, you can go back and and look at all of the nastiness and all of it was brought up. And yet you still have to appreciate what this guy was able to do, not because of golf clubs and SUVs and things like that on a night around American Thanksgiving. You have to look back on it based on what this guy was able to do in battling through injuries, in battling through real blows to his character and real blows to his life. Everything was kind of turned upside down on him, and yet he was able to get out. He was able to play through all that, and he was able to become a champion on one of the toughest stages that exists. But it's interesting to hear Steve Bennett talk about the fact that Tiger Woods knows where to put the ball. So you don't have to outdrive everybody. He's going to know how to play certain holes and that you do see players who come around and they eventually win a green jacket. They eventually win the Masters simply because they're able to pick up on all those little tips. This is not a course you can just go out and play. A lot of guys will do well if their home course happens to be a tour stop. Well, that's fantastic. That's my home course. I know exactly what to do. And the dog leg here, and I put it over that tree, and that's the way that they work it. And it doesn't come that naturally at Augusta. But you've got to look and say, this is impressive for Tiger Woods to be able to do this at not a ripe young age because he's close to being able to join that Champions Tour. I don't think he's going to necessarily right away. I don't think he has to, does he? You have to automatically at 50 walk off to the Champions Tour. You get to play things like the Masters if you've won it before, and he's certainly done that. So I think a congratulations is in order for Tiger Woods. Coming up on London Live, we're going to talk about a very 
difficult role to play, and it's a role that people wind up being in without really a lot of advance warning. And they certainly don't think to a part of their life and say, you know what I'm going to be doing? I'm going to be a full-time caregiver for my spouse. That's what I'm going to be. Full-time caregiver, that's what I'm going to be doing. The Alzheimer's Walk is coming up. And we are going to be able to speak with Deb Weber, who is part of the honoree family this year. And she will talk about what her life is like and what the life of a caregiver is like. We're going to be joined by Carol Walters, CEO of the Alzheimer's Society of London and Middlesex. And Bruce Ray will join us as well. That's coming up after news with Jacqueline LaBelle. This is Global News Radio 980 CFPL. No one said the sun was going to come out today, did they? Well, the sun has come out. And you know what? There are times in life when you've got to remind yourself that that sun will come out either later in the day, maybe it'll come up the next day, because this life's about dealing with a lot of challenges. And we have something coming up in this area. As a matter of fact, it happens on May the 11th at Springbank Gardens. It is the IG Wealth Management Walk for Alzheimer's. And if you have been touched in any way by Alzheimer's, then you know what it does. And you know there are a lot of days where you've got to remind yourself that sun, even if it's behind some clouds, is still going to come up tomorrow because it's not an easy thing to deal with. And we're pretty lucky right now to be able to provide some perspective on that because joining us is the CEO for the Alzheimer's Society of London and Middlesex, Carol Walters. Carol, how are you? Hi, very good. Thank you very much for having us today. Well, thanks for coming in. And we also have Deb Weber. And Deb's family is the honoree family for this year's walk. And Deb, Alzheimer's is something that you now deal with on a day-to-day basis. You have said this before, and I want to ask you about it, because I think people would be surprised to hear that when you and your husband found out about his diagnosis, you used the word relief. You felt relieved. I felt relieved for a second or two. Then I felt huge disbelief and fear. The relief came from knowing that I was not imagining things about Bruce. Bruce could no longer remember his phone number. Sometimes he couldn't remember his name. He couldn't list the name of our children or figure out when they had been born. He did strange things. The first thing I remember, he stopped using the signal light when we were driving, which drove me crazy. And I would remind him time and time again, use it, please, for safety. I noticed that sometimes in the heat of the summer, instead of the air conditioning being on in the car, it was the heat. I noticed that Bruce couldn't follow simple directions of how to get somewhere when he was driving. A specific example, he was working in Kitchener-Waterloo, where our daughter worked, and he had to get to Guelph, and he couldn't get home from there, even with lots of direction from our daughter. Bruce would forget to turn the car off. One time he got stuck in our car. He couldn't get the windows open. He couldn't get the doors open. 
And I got a call through a car dealer that he was in distress because someone had alerted them that Bruce was really having trouble with the vehicle. He simply had to turn the key off, and he couldn't do that. Little things continued to happen. Um, Bruce was an avid card player. He could no longer stand the confusion of playing cribbage. He couldn't add up the scores. He couldn't play euchre with our sons. It was okay if everything was calm and easy, but when the tomfoolery would start, Bruce would just lose it, throw down his cards and say, I can't do this. Really? So it took four or five years of little things building up and people beginning to ask us, what's going on with Bruce? Is he okay? And of course, he'd been to the doctor and... It's dismissed when you're in your 50s as a normal aging. And we didn't pursue anything deeper because we kind of liked that answer. But it did go on and on. And eventually you're forced with making that decision that you need to get to a specialist. We all have those little moments where where you can't think of a name or you you can't think of a word or you you can't think of something. And and like you say, in... In his 50s. Bruce was in his 50s. When did you start to say, okay, maybe we do need to see a doctor. Maybe this is something that we do need to have checked out. Um, 2010, uh, Bruce and I lost me, my father, and he lost his mother the same week in September. And after that point, we were both kind of thrown in a downspin, and I noticed at that point things were getting worse. And I know for myself, I was beginning to notice things for him. I was extremely stressed, which led me to the doctor for my own sanity as well as his. Um, the big indication came when he went on his annual fishing trip with his brother and our son, and I don't know exactly what happened. I'm going to call it an episode where he was completely confused, didn't know where he was, and he was where he'd been every May for five, ten years. So that moment and an alert from his brother sent us back to the doctor, which led to a CAT scan. Good news about that was he didn't have a tumor. The bad news about that was he probably had Alzheimer's. We're talking right now. In studio with Deb Weber, and Deb's family is the honorary family of this year's Alzheimer's Walk, which takes place on May the 11th. Also joining us, Carol Walters, CEO of the Alzheimer's Society of London and Middlesex. We're going to take a quick break. We're going to come back, and we're going to talk about what it is like to be a caregiver of someone with Alzheimer's. We're going to tell you all of what is going on with the walk itself, how you can get involved, and how you can help out. This is London Live from Global News Radio, 980 CFPL. We are learning right now. Always great to learn. We're learning about... Alzheimer's, and most importantly, we're going to learn in a moment about what being a caregiver is truly like, because the Alzheimer's Walk is, or the Walk for Alzheimer's, is coming up on May the 11th in London, and it is something that you can take part in. We are joined by Deb Weaver, who 
the Weber family is the honoree family of this year's walk. Carol Walters is with us, CEO of the Alzheimer's Society of London and Middlesex. And Carol, as far as the walk goes, what do we need to know right now? Because we're just about the right time out from the walk mm-hmm. to really get ourselves involved. What do we need to know? Yeah, we, we need people to join teams. So so certainly to get things geared up, start fundraising, you can go on for, onto the website, walkforalzheimer.ca, and it's all one word, no, no spaces in there. And join, join a team that exists or start up your own team, start fundraising. Um, this walk is our largest fundraiser, so it is very important to us. And all funds that are raised on the walk stay in London and Middlesex. So they, they go directly to programs and services to, to assist in, and to work with families, such as we're hearing uh, Deb's story today. So uh, very excited. This is a great community event. So I've, I've been attending for a number of years. We have over 800 people that normally come out to it. It's at Springbank Gardens here in London. The walk is about four and a half kilometers down along the river. So it's a beautiful, beautiful walk. There's lots of different little events. There's coffee. We have a barbecue at the end of the walk, so everyone can stay around for the barbecue. So really, it's it's getting people involved. Um, if you're not able to join a team or you're not going to be in the city on that date, certainly you can um, go on to walkforalzheimers.ca and donate our sponsor, Deb Weaver's team. So the Weber Wobblers is Deb's team, <laughs> and uh, that that's certainly uh, one way that you can help us. Well, that's fantastic. And we want to let you know that this year's walk is brought to you by IG Wealth Management. So they've been a tremendous part of this. And if you would like to donate to the Weber family, you are welcome to. Deb is actually going to be walking in a pair of red shoes that you cannot see right now. But I want you to picture Dorothy from The Wizard of Oz. And I want you to picture the shoes that she wore. Now turn them into comfortable running shoes because... Deb, that's what they look like. Hey, they're my favorite sketchers. <laughs> now, you wear those not just because they, they happen to be red. You wear those because this has kind of become a symbol for you. Yes. Um, when I was asked to speak last year to the board of directors, you painfully think about how am I going to start? What am I going to use for my platform? And I do feel like Dorothy in the Wizard of Oz. Um, My life is becoming clearer now, and it's becoming easier because I equate the Alzheimer's Society in London Middlesex with reaching the land of Oz and learning so much to help navigate through this very challenging role as a caregiver for Bruce. So at the beginning, did it feel like you had been swept up in a tornado? Absolutely. Um, My heart broke. My heart broke for Bruce the day that he was diagnosed, February 8th, 2012, by a neurologist. On that day, Bruce totally lost his independence. He lost his driver's license that day. It was heartbreaking, and you just don't know what life is going to throw at you next. So you're in a whirlwind. You don't know anything about the disease. You've avoided it because of fear. 
And there you are on this road. And thankfully, our doctor gave me the prescription of go see the Alzheimer's Society. That has really helped us navigate this tremendous loss in our life. As a caregiver, can you give us a sense of of the responsibilities that you just have to take on on a day-to-day basis? What do you have to do? The disease progresses. At the very beginning, life wasn't really that different, except that I had to do all the driving. So I was always the designated driver. <laughs> um, it meant that travel was difficult. We were fortunate to be able to travel a bit with Bruce's eight siblings, which made it easier because you always needed to have someone in front and someone behind when you travel. Now we have progressed to the point where Bruce needs help 24-7. He can still eat by himself, but it's a lot of finger food. We're very blessed that he's still continent, but he needs direction to find the bathroom. Um, He has lost his ability to speak, which means we have to do a lot of guessing about what he needs and how he is feeling. Not being able to express himself is a huge loss. He can't name his grandchildren. He can't kibitz with them, which is quite heartbreaking, and yet he has a beautiful relationship with them. But at this point, Bruce needs help with personal care. He needs help getting dressed. So it's akin to going backward in life and having a young child to look after again. And we make the best of every day. Um, Every day is a gift. Every day brings some humor. And we try to look on it as, as a journey that we can handle because we have tons of people behind us. You have such a strong outlook on this. Where does that come from? That's like the lion almost in Wizard of Oz. You have Dorothy's shoes, but you got you have some other traits going on too. <laughs> the three characters that Dorothy met, Scarecrow, the lion, and the tin man, all had great needs. And through the Alzheimer's Society, each of those have have come to me um, courage, courage to do what I'm doing today. I said to Bruce, you're pushing me out of my comfort zone here. Um, courage to face each day as a gift, knowing that there will be challenges, but there are also beautiful moments that happen. Um, heart, your heart and your soul, it breaks, but through the care of many, and I have to say our four kids And their partners and our six grandchildren are a huge part of the support that that I have. And they all love their father, even though there are moments when I'm sure they are tremendously saddened by where Papa is now. And education is a huge part of having that control over your life. You need to know what is happening, why it is happening, And knowing what is coming down the road is very important. And I have to say that the programs offered for dementia care people through the Alzheimer's Society 
really fills that void for me. We're talking with Deb Weaver. Carol Walters is here as well, the CEO of the Alzheimer's Society of London and Middlesex. In terms of, of some of those programs that assist you, what do you look to as, as being something that is, is really helpful to you? Um, presently, I'm in a program with a social worker. It's a small group program at the Alzheimer's Society. Um, it began in the fall. It's called the Carers Group, and through that, six of us have become the Care Bears, and we're now in the second session of that with a very wonderful, knowledgeable a young social worker named Hana, and she is leading us through therapeutic problem solving. So something as simple as, how do I get Bruce to brush his teeth? We're going to do a simulation of that this week. How, how do you approach these difficulties without losing your mind, without becoming angry and frustrated? These are all the skills that you have to have the same kind of skills you have to have as a parent go right back into practice when you're working with someone who no longer has the skills to do these things himself. Well, the Walk for Alzheimer's is coming up May the 11th. Carol, one more time, how do people get involved so that we can help with these programs? This this is is a perspective that shows us just how important these programs are. How do we get involved? Yeah, well, uh, please try to join us on May 11th for the Walk for Alzheimer's. Go to our website, walkforalzheimers.ca, to sign up. Um, Join one of the teams that are on there. Create your own team. Uh, If you're not going to be in the city, um, as I mentioned, donate to a team that's there. Donate to the Weber's Wobblers. That would be wonderful. Um, The event starts at 9 a.m. on, or registration starts at 9 a.m. on May 11th, and opening ceremonies are at 10.15. The walk completes around 9.30, and we go into um, closing ceremonies and a barbecue. So it's it's for all ages. So I, I just... They said it's a great community event. The feeling there, the energy there is is amazing. Regardless of rain or shine, it, it seems to bring the best out in people. There's there's ways of acknowledging loved ones that, that and walking for them um, that you know with, with Alzheimer's disease as well. So really we need we need people to sign up for the walk. People with this is our twenty-fifth year for the walk. So it's been around a while. So we have a lot of repeat customers that, that come out, which is wonderful. And and it's um, the the money raised. It is our largest fundraiser, and the money raised will stay within within London and Middlesex. It goes directly to programs and services, as you're hearing uh, described by Deb today. Well, Carol, Deb, thank you so much. Good luck to the Weber's Wobblers, best name that I've heard in a long time. Mm-hmm. And thank you so much for being here today. Thank you very thank much. Thank you, Deb Weber. Also with us, Carol Walters, CEO of the Alzheimer's Society of London and Middlesex. We'll take a quick break. Back with more in a moment. This is London Live on Global News Radio, 980 CFPL. Thanks again to Deb and to Carol for coming in. We have news coming up. That is part of a developing story with Jacqueline LaBelle. There's a fire at the Notre Dame Cathedral in Paris, France. 
And this building is 800 years old. Details on that and more in seconds. And then we'll talk carbon tax, London Knights, give you a chance to win London Knights tickets. Lots still ahead on London Live and Global News Radio, 980 CFPL. So today, the Ontario government is challenging the federal carbon law in the Ontario Court of Appeal. Are they going to win? I don't know. I'm not a member of the Ontario Court of Appeal. Sure? No? We'll find out. They are challenging it, and we're going to look at this in a perspective from someone who deals in gas prices. I had something spelled out to me, and, and I'll, I'll run this by Dan McTagg from GasBuddy.com as we begin our conversation. And it's how much money we actually are responsible for when it comes to our own carbon tax. So how much of a carbon footprint we're putting down in driving a vehicle. First, let's welcome Dan McTagg to London Live. Dan, how are things? Uh, not bad. Yourself? Uh, not too bad. I know this has been a really busy day for you, so thanks for taking some time out for us. I want to throw some numbers at you that have been spelled out to me to see what you think of this. Let's say that somebody is driving 1,000 kilometers a month, so that's that's pretty decent. That's a good commute. And let's say you're driving a vehicle, and just to make nice round numbers, that vehicle gets 100 kilometers over 10 liters of fuel. So 10 liters of fuel provides you with 100 100 kilometers of travel. And if we look at the gas law or the carbon law and what we are spending at the gas pumps, it's about 4.4 cents per liter. So if we multiply that by... 12 months, we get $52.80. That's, boom, put it down, our footprint. Does that make sense? Well, I mean, you always have to look at the fact it's $0.05 cents a litre in Ontario, not 4.42. Okay, so uh, $55 then. Yeah, so you're looking at, uh, if, if I'm losing, if I'm using uh, uh, only a small amount of 12, you say 12 litres a week, um, you might as well park your car, by the way, at that level. Uh, <laughs> uh, most the average use in Canada is about forty-five liters a week. So, using forty-five liters a week at five cents—that's an extra two bucks a week. So, you're looking at about another hundred, hundred and ten bucks uh, a year for that person who's uh, who's driving based on this tax. And that's only for this year, as we know it increases over the next couple of years, uh, Mike. So. Uh, yeah, that's only for gasoline, and that's only for your one car, and that's only for the average driver out there. What it doesn't include, of course, is the other costs, uh, the higher heating costs, the higher uh, diesel costs to transport products to and from the store that you go to, uh, and, of course, a higher cost for just about every business that's out there. All of these things are going to have a rather dramatic impact on the cost of living, far more than uh, is uh, being sold by the current federal government. Okay. Now, lots and lots of people have filled out their tax returns and have seen on their tax return a little return that comes back by way of the federal carbon law. When you look at at that, that can be as much as a little over $300, sometimes falls in the $200 to $300 range. What do you make of what's going on there? Well, if practically the government is saying this is going to reduce uh, emissions, uh, which I don't think uh, it is, and certainly doesn't meet its own goals, then one would have to ask the question, if this isn't going to hurt the average family, then where's the, uh, where's the savings? Not just in terms of money, 
But if I'm going to get more money back than what I'm using, then by all means, I'll continue doing what I'm doing. I won't change my behavior. So there's a, there's a, there's a practical, illogical side to this, but I'll let the politicians and those who, uh, who love this kind of stuff make the argument. All I can tell you is that uh, in British Columbia, which the government likes to trot out as an example, the product is not revenue neutral. It goes back into the general revenues. It is not decreasing emissions. Worse, it's contributing in no small part to the dollar seventy a liter that they're paying for. Yes, folks, a dollar seventy a liter today in Vancouver, which I predicted two and a half weeks ago. So, if you really want to get trendy, get on board, and you don't have a problem with this kind of stuff, uh, unless you're driving a bike in the middle of winter, this is not good news for most Canadians, and certainly isn't for our friends here in London. So, if the push is to get us to produce less emissions and reduce our emissions, then how are they missing the, the ball here? Well, because they want to be trendy. Uh, what they should be doing is following the CAFE standards, the corporate average fuel efficiency standards. Maybe they don't like to give credit, and this may explain why some companies are packing up and getting out of Canada. As they're saying, listen, we are taking an eight-cylinder and turning it into a four-cylinder and giving you just as much power and, emit- and uh, just as much uh, of a drivetrain bolt as we've had in the past. Um, uh, but we're doing it with less fuel, and we're doing it with uh, with fewer emissions. Not that we're getting any credit for it. And here's where I think the federal government has really missed the boat. Rather than going after smart regulations that actually target, encourage, persuade uh, companies to reduce emissions, they've taken the easy way out and clubbed consumers over the head. Now, I'm, as you know, Mike, uh, uh, I, I, I used to be part of that Liberal Party. I stood there for 18 years as a member of Parliament. Most of that is its consumer critic. This is absolutely the wrong way to go about it. But I'll let the public decide, uh, because uh, as long as you say it's about saving the earth and climate change and stuff, people are willing to go along with it, up to the point where they realize just how much it's going to start to cost them. And I think that uh, having had some experience with rebates, in fact, I produced two energy rebates for Canadians in the early 2000s, so I have a tiny bit of uh, knowledge in these kind of things. More often than not, you have winners and losers, and guess what? Most people are losers. We're talking with Dan McTagg from GasBuddy.com. So the fact that the Ontario government is challenging this in the Ontario Court of Appeal today, what do you make of that? Is this just posturing by the provincial government here, or is this something that, that could actually make a difference? Well, the federal government doesn't have the right to impose a tax, uh, but it does have the right to regulate. So it's really up to the courts. Now, having said that, I can't presume what the courts are going to think, but uh, I know level of judicial activism in our courts can be uh, can be pretty strong, especially on issues of constitutional law. I think it'll be a slam dunk for the federal government uh, because most uh, you know most would probably defer to say, "Look, this is a political decision." At the end of the day, we're not going to we're not going to interfere. But uh, again, I have no more constitutional background than anyone else, uh, other than those that are there making the arguments. But uh, uh, you know, I sense that this thing is far from over, and I think for judges and current politicians emphasize the word current uh, representatives uh, they may want to well remember the political dimension of this and that's that people rejected this in Ontario and rather in, in a very decisive way last June uh, people may want to change their minds but I find that when people start to have to pay things and that see that there's very little return for it or that what they've been sold is not true or worse uh, doesn't achieve the objective it's sold and billed as then I think people will uh, will rightly make that decision and pass that judgment once again October, uh, judges and politicians notwithstanding. Dan, you mentioned B.C. and the fact that we do see gas prices out there, as you predicted, 
well higher than what the highest gas price had been, four cents higher, $1.70 a liter is what we are seeing. How closely are you paying attention to see if that does make a difference to driving habits in the long run? Well, I think it will make a difference to everyone. BC's problem and Vancouver's problem in particular is that it's become too 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 costly to stay in that town. So people are moving out, uh, and to move out, they're going to locations that are not served by train or other forms of public transportation. So it's a vicious circle. Um, you know, look at what people are driving today and compared to what they were driving ten or fifteen years ago. Again, these things tend to target the wrong people, and if you want to curb people's behavior. Start with those who can best ensure that that's done. Uh, start talking to the automotive industry. But more importantly, that industry has done remarkable work. I like to tell people one of the previous jobs I had was uh, public relations for Toyota Canada. I helped introduce a little car called uh, the Tsunami. Now, no one knows what that is, but they'll know it today as the Prius. So, you know, the idea of better fuel efficiency, uh, reducing emissions, reducing our carbon footprint, doing more with less, it's not a new concept, and it will continue to evolve. And I think the industry is behind this. But as I said earlier, Mike, I think it is absolutely wrong-headed to target people uh, who are struggling, who are insisting in every poll that I've seen so far that affordability has become the number one issue in Canada. Climate change is dead last. Uh, that the government's uh, got its priorities uh, really backwards here, and it ought to really consider or reconsider its view because I think it's uh, likely to lead to the demise of that party come election. Dan, thanks for the work that you do. Thanks for joining us today. Good to be here, Mike. Thanks for having me. Cheers. Dan McTagg from GasBuddy.com, a former member of the Liberal Party. Dan has held a lot of important jobs to be able to weigh in and look at this from a number of different angles. And he raises a really interesting point, and it's that you want to get things done, all right? And whether you, as he called it, pick up on something that is trendy and put it into place, But the overall problem in all of this is that things happen slowly when you're talking about behaviors. It's difficult to get somebody to change their behavior unless they're about two years old or three years old and they're forming their behavior. If somebody falls on the floor and throws a tantrum, you can get them to change their behavior. It may take actually days, weeks, and months But you can get them to change their behavior so that they realize that when they throw themselves down on the floor, whatever it is they wanted to have happen doesn't happen. And then they start thinking in their own mind without even realizing it, you know, this whole throwing on the floor thing, that's not really paying off. It's not doing what I thought. So I'm going to try a different thing. But behaviors, even there, I mean, we're talking weeks, months to fix a behavior like that. Anyone who's been through the terrible twos or the terrible threes with a person in their family knows it. But when we're talking about behaviors of people who are older and more set in their ways, it takes an awfully long time. And that's why something like this, you do just fall victim to it. When a carbon tax is brought in, you do just fall victim to it. I always like to quote Marv in this situation because Marv in the past ran a business and that business required him to own a vehicle and drive that vehicle. And he once said, if it's $200 a liter, I still have to pay it because I still have to go and service my customers. 
So we fall victim to something like this. An increase of five cents at the pumps? Yeah, okay, we're paying. But nobody is changing their behavior, and ultimately, that's what we need. And nobody is going to change their behavior enough, I don't believe, between 2030 and 2050 so that we can possibly you know, look at what the scientists are saying and avoid the temperature on this earth going up by a degree and a half and having places that are completely uninhabitable, having places that we're seeing horrendous conditions, that we're losing food production for our ever-growing population. I don't, there's no way that we are going to avoid that. So it's not that I want to throw up my hands, but bringing in a five-cent tax at the pumps is not doing it because people are not changing their behavior. You know what we're doing? We are anteing up more money to pay the price at the pumps. It was nice when it was a dollar two. It was nice when sometimes it even got down to 99.9. And now when it's anywhere from 119 to 130 or by the time the summer hits and people are moving around all over the place and it's 140 or 150, we're just going to keep paying it. But does, does that mean that we're going to be driving less? No. That means that you have fewer disposable dollars to throw at the restaurant industry, to throw at fun and games. That's what you have. Fewer disposable dollars in all of this. Fewer dollars for a coffee at Tim Hortons? No, I don't think so. We'll keep buying that like we buy gas. But for some things, yeah, you've got fewer disposable dollars. So that hurts your economy that way. And look at what Dan McTaggart said, and I love that he brought this up. Because this shows the lack of planning that exists. And again, we're in a system in which you can't change this because we're in a system in which we elect governments. Alberta's about to do it tomorrow where those governments stay four years. So you can't plan long term. They all try to plan long term and then the new party will get in and they'll change what the old party did just because the old party had done that. So you have no long term plan. Look at what Dan McTagg said about British Columbia and Vancouver specifically. You want to live in Vancouver? I don't. I absolutely do. I don't know how people would. Here's a three-bedroom home for over a million dollars. Sounds like a steal. No, it's not. It's way too high. Gas prices at $1.70. That's fantastic. No, it's not. Terrible. So what are people doing? They are moving outside the city. They are moving to Surrey. They are moving to New Westminster. They are moving to all these little communities around Vancouver. And what's the problem with those communities? You need to have a car and you need to commute into the city. So anything that is being done that is trying to cut emissions from vehicles or what have you, vehicles are just the easiest thing to point to, it's not working because people are going to have to commute to a greater degree. And is that going to bring down the price of houses in Vancouver? Not significantly enough. Because everything will happen slowly. A house is not going to go from being worth $1.2 million to being worth $120,000 overnight. It's not going to happen. Everything happens slowly. And because of that, we're not changing our attitudes based on some tax or based on some law. It's not going to happen. And eventually 2030 will arrive and the scientists will report that we've seen a rise of a degree in our temperature and if it gets to another half degree, there's no turning back. And then that other half degree will come and there'll be no turning back. And we'll just learn how to live on that kind of an earth.
That's it. That's what will play out. And the politicians can mess around all they want unless you've got a long-term plan, which none of them can provide because none of them are in power long enough. And unless you've got a cohesive plan that involves other leaders around the world, you still have your situation where if it's a windy day and you've raked up all your leaves, everybody else who hasn't raked their leaves has those leaves blow onto your lawn. That's where we are. And I hate to say it, but maybe it's time to stop mucking around with, oh, well, let's challenge this and do this. Shut up. It's not going to work. It's not going to do anything. What we have to do is either take it upon ourselves to say, you know what, I am going to make a change. I am going to pay attention to what I'm doing, not because of some tax or some law, but because it's the right thing to do. And that's what we should be promoting, because that's the only thing that's going to make a true change in the end. Let's take a break. Up next, something a little lighter, the world's most dangerous bird. This is London Live on Global News Radio, 980 CFPL. Great note from Al on this, and he's exactly right. And it goes to the grocery store theory that you can have. The grocery store theory is if you go in and you really like, and you can pick the item. Let's pick taco shells today. You really like a certain kind of taco shells, and they are, you're the, they're your favorite. You go in and you buy those taco shells, and then one day, because of a deal that that grocery store has signed with somebody else, those taco shells aren't available. So you have to buy a different kind of taco shell. And at first, you don't want to. And you don't buy those taco shells. And then eventually, you really want to have some tacos. So you buy those taco shells, and you live with it. Are they ever like the ones that you used to have? No. But are they still taco shells? Can you still have tacos? Yeah. And are they that much different? Not really. Here's what Al says. Justin Trudeau wants his money so he can pay for the corrupt carbon credits from China to meet his number in Paris. That's all it's for. If they wanted to change our habit, they could just pass legislation to force companies to build more electric vehicles and fewer gas vehicles, create more efficient furnaces, more efficient houses, etc. We did it years ago when we forced car manufacturers to increase fuel efficiency on vehicles and reduce emissions. Just do it again. Al's absolutely right. It's like the taco shells. No, no, we're not going to have those taco shells anymore. And eventually, if that's all that there is to buy, people are going to buy whatever taco shells you are providing because they want tacos. So where do we sit in all of this? We sit in a rut because you are, you're asking for people who are trying to win over the lowest common denominator to get reelected to make the decisions. And that's where we are federally right now doesn't matter what the liberals are doing. What do they want? They want to get reelected. So whatever they're doing is to get reelected from now on. We're at that period of time that I hate in politics. Can't stand this period of time because it has nothing to do with what's good for the country. And it has nothing to do with what's good for people. It has everything to do with how can we win over the lowest common denominator so the dummies will vote for us again. It's annoying. Okay, I promise something a little bit lighter. The world's most dangerous bird has been discovered. Well, it's been known about for a while. You got to be careful, though. And here's the weird part about this. The world's most dangerous bird is a flightless bird. So it, it can't even fly at you. This is not some pterodactyl. But people continue to buy these things and bring them onto their property just to own an exotic animal in different places around the world. And we had a really tragic situation over the weekend where one of these birds actually killed somebody and 
that it's it though I didn't mention what the name of the world's most dangerous bird was what did I the cassowary this is a a turkey slash ostrich looking thing it's really big and it's got these claws that have four inch lengths to them and it will come at you with those claws by kicking you scary scary bird do not buy a cassowary at any time even if you have a large property and you want to own an exotic bird world's most dangerous bird considered to be the cassowary you want to stay far far away from the cassowary coming up we want you to stay Close, close, close to the radio because we're going to give you a chance to win tickets to go and see the London Knights and the Guelph Storm in game number seven. That happens tomorrow night at Budweiser Gardens. The winner of that game wins the series and moves on. The team that does not win begins summertime. That's the trade-off, and it happens tomorrow at 7 o'clock at Budweiser Gardens. We have tickets to give away. We'll talk with Knights Associate GM Rob Simpson, and we'll also talk about some of the other strange things going on in the sports world. Hi, Tampa Bay Lightning. Wow, you had a great season. Here's your reward, the Columbus Blue Jackets. And it's not going well for Tampa Bay. We'll talk about that. This is Global News Radio, 980 CFPL. The last time the London Knights played a Game 7 was what? 2013. One of the most famous moments in London Knights history. You remember it? Knights and the Barry Colts tied 2-2. Time kind of ticking down. Colts cleared their zone. Knights jammed the puck back in. It comes around the boards to the left side. Alex Broadhurst throws the puck at the net, and it goes off a stick, goes right to Bo Horvat at the side of the net, and he tucks it in. And the Knights win with .1 seconds left. I'll tell you a story. I've told it before, but I'll tell it again. I'll tell you a story in a moment about the referee who was working that particular game and what he went through. If you remember how long the delay was, I don't know if you watched the Women's World Championship yesterday. We haven't seen enough blowback from that. Maybe because it's Canada and we weren't, Canada wasn't in the championship game. It was the United States and Finland. And in overtime, Finland appeared to score a goal. Now, the U.S. goalie was contacted as the goal was scored, but Finland appeared to score a goal to the point they cheered, they celebrated, and Morris Della Costa, I saw him point this out in a tweet, and he was exactly right if you go back and look at the video, where Finland is celebrating. Helmets off, gloves off. They have just won the Women's World Championship, something they'd never done before. This is Canada or it's the United States. That's it. And now Finland's program has climbed incredibly They've done a great job with their program. And so now you have them celebrating, and at center ice, you have an American player talking with one of the referees. And all of a sudden, the referee goes off, and they start this review. And this review goes on for minutes, minutes. And they come back, and they disallow the goal. And the United States would eventually win in a shootout. But there wasn't really a great explanation at the time as to why that was happening. I haven't seen much of an explanation since. I'll see if I can find anything new on that. We'll see if we can find anything new on Nazem Kadri. And I'll tell you that Kendrick Nicholson story. Plus, we'll give you a chance to win Knights tickets and talk with Knights associate GM Rob Simpson. What do you tell the guys? They've won three games, and then they've lost three games. And now they go into one game winner take all. What do you say to the players? This is Global News Radio, 980 CFPL.
No update yet on any suspension for Nazem Kadri. The Toronto Maple Leafs play Boston tonight in game number three. As far as Finland and the United States, this this doesn't look good when things like this happen. Finland attempted to file a formal complaint after the game, and the IIHF released a statement saying all goals that were scored during the 2019 IIHF Ice Hockey Women's World Championship were reviewed by the IIHF video goal judge. The overtime goal scored by Team Finland against Team USA was reviewed and disallowed by the video goal judge due to non-incidental goaltender interference. So you can't file a formal complaint. It's over. U.S. has won, and away they go. So that uh, that had an unfortunate ending. The London Knights and the Guelph Storm are finally going to get to an ending tomorrow night. What do we know? Well, we know that they're going to Game 7. We'll talk with Knights Associate GM Rob Simpson in just a couple of minutes. But the last time the London Knights played a Game 7, it's been a while. It was 2013 in the OHL Championship Series And we just talked about the goal where the puck came around the boards. Last seconds of the game, Alex Broadhurst throws it at the net. It ricochets to Bo Horvat, and he tucks it in with .1 seconds left. And Kendrick Nicholson was the referee. And I'll kind of paraphrase what happened throughout all of this, but the puck has gone into the net. The Knights have celebrated a little bit, but... It was still going to be reviewed, and so you've got the two captains standing. Kendrick Nicholson is on the phone, and he goes over, and he picks up the phone, and he says, uh, okay, uh, check the goal, and the video goal judge looks at it and says, yeah, the puck crossed the line. I can see it. It's a good goal, and he says, okay, check it again, and the goal judge says, yep, looked at it again. It's a good goal. Check it again. Yeah, good goal. Okay, check it one more time. He just wanted to be sure. This was a championship-winning goal. And so the video goal judge does the job that the video goal judge does, looks at it, yep, puck has crossed the line, still time on the clock, and yep, it is a good goal. So Kendrick Nicholson, who had his helmet off, takes his helmet, puts it on his head, grabs the chin strap, does up the chin strap, the whole crowd is going, goal, 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 and pointing to center ice while all this is happening. And Nicholson adjusts the chin strap, puts his helmet on completely, looks over at his fellow referee and says, well, this city's going to have a good time tonight, and points to center ice, goal. And then the place just went off. And the city went off. And it's one of the most famous moments in all of Knight's history, Bo Horvat's Championship-winning goal with .1 seconds left. And I love that Rob Maddock reminded us earlier that Bo Horvat had scored with .3 seconds left, I think it was, in a playoff game earlier. He just has that knack. He'll do it one day for the Vancouver Canucks. Speaking of Rob, he sent us a note about the the uh, bird, the world's most dangerous bird, runs 31 miles an hour. Maybe that's what makes it the most dangerous bird in the world. Doesn't fly, runs 31 miles an hour. And has four-inch claws on it. Stay away from those. What did I say that was called? A caraway? Eat caraway seeds. Avoid caraway birds. That's our tip today from London Live. Let's talk some London Knights. Joining us is the Associate General Manager of the London Knights, Rob Simpson. Rob, we know the setting. London won the first three games. Guelph won the next three games. How do you handle that kind of a scenario with the players, given the way this series has gone? Well, I think you look at it realistically that we had a 
a very good start to the series, and Guelph's had a a good start to, or a good second half of the series. And I think at at the start, nobody thought either team was going to win, you know, four games in a row. That it was going to be a game that a series that would go six or seven games. So. I think just looking at it uh, realistically that maybe we had a little bit of puck luck and some things go right in our first three games and, and vice versa for them in the last three. So what do you tell the players then? Because at the same time, they're coming in trying to win for the first time in four games. Well, I think that, you know, you just you get back to the details of your game again. Yeah, um, you know, you want to keep the game simple. You don't want to change everything you're doing completely because it has worked and and at times we just need to execute better on our chances and and uh you know clean up some of our defensive end uh, mistakes that we've made you mentioned puck luck and that's certainly been a part of both halves of this series is there anything that guelph has changed significantly you know what i think the just their attention to the defensive side of the game has has taken another step i think that they have a lot more guys above the puck now uh, that is making it, you know, a little bit more difficult for for us to get uh, through the neutral zone or even in the defensive end. They've made some small tweaks, but they've been effective tweaks. When you look at, at a one-game winner-take-all scenario, do players truly live for this? Do they get excited about that kind of a prospect that, hey, this comes down to tonight and, or, or in this case, tomorrow, and that's it? Yeah, I think everybody does. I mean, you know, from management to coaches to players, even the fans, you know, you love that atmosphere of one game, take all, and it's exciting. And, you know, when you're playing street hockey as a young kid, you're not saying, okay, we're playing game two of the second round. You're talking about game sevens, right? So it's it's definitely exciting, and it's definitely um, something that players want to be involved in, and, and they want that that pressure there of being the guy in the key moment, I would say. Knights head coach Dale Hunter always uses that word, execute. Tomorrow, is that a word that, that kind of comes into the vocabulary, the team that executes, gives themselves the chance to win? Yes, that's what it always comes down to in, in games like this is, you know, the team that can execute the best is going to have the better chance to win. doesn't mean that you always will, but you're definitely putting your, your right foot forward and, and giving yourself a chance to win when you execute on your systems, on the plays that need to be made, and and uh, stick into your system as possible. Well, Rob, we wish you the best of luck in game number seven. We will have a chance to win tickets in just a moment. Thanks so much for the time. Rob Simpson, Associate GM of the London Knights. Tomorrow night, Game 7, Budweiser Gardens. If there are tickets available, and I think there are still a couple, you can get them at 519-681-0800. You can drop by the Knights Armories, or you can go online to londonknights.com. We've got a skill-testing question. Not a still-testing question. Skill-testing question for you next. And if you can be the first to get it right, you will be off to see Game 7, Knights and Storm at Budweiser Gardens. Phone lines are open, 519-643-2222. If you're feeling confidence like Family Feud, where you buzz in even before they say, here's the question. If you want to try that, well, we may have to answer your call before we even get to the question. But we'll ask the question next. This is London Live on Global News Radio, 980 CFPL. There are very few Game 7s on home ice. The London Knights and the Guelph Storm have played one before. It's not one the Knights fans like to remember because it didn't go London's way. But 
the guys on the team that year, credit that for helping them to come back and do what they did the next year, which was win the Memorial Cup. It was kind of like that old story that you hear from the New York Islanders and the Edmonton Oilers series the first time they met. The Oilers walked by the dressing room after losing the Stanley Cup final, and they expected lots of cheering and celebrating. And yeah, there's a little bit, but they happened to look inside, and there were guys with ice packs who just looked completely beaten to a pulp because that's what it took. That's what it took to win. All out. Edmonton came back, won four of the next five Stanley Cups. There's a great picture as well of the Chicago Blackhawks. The only guy who could get through the Stanley Cup playoffs and not break a sweat is Patrick Kane. There's a great picture of Patrick Kane with Dave Boland and Duncan Keith. Duncan Keith had taken a puck or a stick in the mouth, and he was missing about five teeth, and he was all cut up. Dave Boland looked like he had the worst flu of his life. He just looked completely drained. And there's Patrick Kane standing in the middle of both of them, celebrating a Stanley Cup championship. He had one dot of sweat right in the middle of his T-shirt. That was it. That's how good a player he is. So... Let's talk about how we can give away these tickets. We have two tickets to go and see the Knights and the Guelph Storm tomorrow night, Budweiser Gardens, and here is the skill testing question. The winner of tomorrow's game is going to face a team that has never been to the conference finals before, but is there already. Name that team. Who will the winner of the London Knights and the Guelph Storm face in the conference finals? Darren, you get the first shot at this. Saginaw? It will be the Saginaw Spirit. Congratulations. Right on. You have it. Hang on. I'll get some information from you. The Saginaw Spirit won last night, knocking out the Sault Ste. Marie Greyhounds in six games. Sault Ste. Marie was trying to do what Guelph had done, trying to stay alive, force a game number seven. Did not happen as Saginaw wound up winning it. So they are off to the conference final for the first time in their history. It will be Ottawa and either Oshawa or Niagara. The Niagara Ice Dogs declared this almost right from the start, their year, and made a number of trades, spent a lot of future draft picks, and now they are at risk of not even making it to the conference finals. They have to beat Oshawa tonight just to force a game seven. They trail three games to two. So that's what's happening in OHL hockey. We have seen Donald Trump weigh in on Tiger Woods. You ready for this? President Trump is going to award Tiger Woods with the Presidential Medal of Freedom after his Masters victory. You know that... Donald Trump is a very big golf fan, so yes, the Presidential Medal of Freedom. I don't know the answer to this, so I'm only just going to throw this out there before I actually form an opinion on it, but I'm, I'm wondering right away who normally is awarded the Presidential Medal of Freedom. I'm thinking, and I don't know this for sure, help me out, I'm thinking that it's not usually an athlete. That's what I'm thinking. I'm thinking that something like that is probably pretty special, and it's not usually given to an athlete. I don't know that for sure. We'll talk about that on the show tomorrow. But Donald Trump has tweeted, spoke to Tiger Woods to congratulate him on the great victory he had in yesterday's Masters and to inform him that because of his incredible success and comeback in sports, in parentheses golf, and more importantly life, I will be presenting him with the Presidential Medal of Freedom. Pretty sure that that would be something that you would reserve for the non-athlete. 
And if that's the case, that's not good. That's not a good look. Not a good look at all. Okay, a couple stories before we go. One being the developing story that is taking place in Paris, France, at Notre Dame or the Notre Dame Cathedral, as it is known normally in Canada. Um, it has been burning for a while, and we're losing a, a landmark, one of one of the most prestigious places of worship, going back 800 years. And so a very, very sad day in that way. We'll have details on that coming up at 3 o'clock with Jacqueline LaBelle and Matthew Trevithick as well. You know, we always hear wild and crazy stories coming out of Florida. Uh, we've got one to close out the show today that actually tops Florida. This makes very little sense at all, but police have confirmed it. It took place in Eau Claire, Wisconsin over the weekend. The police services in Eau Claire received a call about 8.30 at night, and it was a call to a Walmart because there were things going on that people in the store could not control. Police arrived on scene to find a mom doing karate moves in the parking lot. That was the least of anybody's worries. Um... Inside the store was her dog, Bo, and her 25-year-old son, Benny. Bo had been running around and had apparently grabbed a box of Jiffy Cornbread Muffin Mix and tried to steal it. He's a dog. But Jiffy Cornbread Muffin Mix tried to leave the store. Can you charge a dog with shoplifting? I don't think so. The worst part was actually Benny. Uh, Benny was driving a scooter around the store that apparently he owned. Benny had gone into the back of the store and had removed every stitch of clothing that he had worn into the store. He pulled a bunch of clothes off the racks, had yet to put them on, and was back on his scooter. And when police attempted to apprehend him, apprehend him, uh, he attempted to run them over with his scooter. They stopped the scooter and they, police, this is, this is why police in the United States do not get paid enough. They had to take into custody naked Benny and they also had to track down the dog Bo. The mom was still practicing karate in the parking lot. That family deserves its own reality show. A lot of people who have reality shows are boring and don't deserve their own reality show. I want to know what happens tomorrow in that family. That's what I want to know. If, if this was just a, a common day, I want to know what's going to happen the next day and the, and the day after that as well. I want them to have their own reality TV show. Problem is you have to pay people for their reality TV show. And then money kind of changes everything for them. We need to keep them in their natural habitat. We need to film them, and we need to figure out what makes this family tick and what makes that dog want to shoplift. Had he not been fed in a while? Cornbread muffin mix can be very good, but in the powder form, mm, it'll dehydrate you in a hurry. We are out of time on London Live. We do have news coming up next with Jacqueline LaBell. Tomorrow on the show, we're going to talk about genetically modified foods with a journalist that has been studying these things for a long, long time because we have genetically modified salmon now approved to appear on shelves in Canadian stores. Hey, if it's going to be cheap salmon, I'm in. Is that a dumb thing for me to say? That's one thing we'll investigate tomorrow on London Live. Thanks to Matt McInnes for his help. Jacqueline LaBelle on the way next with news with Matt Trevithick. You are listening to Global News Radio, 980 CFPL.